Just when David thought that his sin was hidden, thinking he had gotten away with adultery, murder, and mayhem, just when he thought his sin was hidden, God, in his mercy, sends Nathan to show David just how wrong he is. This is the 23rd sermon in the series Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from 2 Samuel and chapter 12, the first 14 verses, the first 14 verses, 1 through 14. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, David is confronted with his evil. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which had brought and nourished up, and grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat, and drank of his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock out of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives unto thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore, Hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou dost did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, that thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. Paul writes to the church at Rome, Romans in chapter 6, one verse only. One verse is all Paul really had to write. Verse 23. By the same spirit that the prophet wrote, so does Paul write, and he says this, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, 
The flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Uriah now having been killed in battle as a result of David's murderous intention to cover his sin, David now takes Bathsheba as his wife and she bears him a son. It would seem that by this time David had gotten away with his adultery. Deception and murder, even the murder of Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, he had gotten away with this, and so it seemed. Bathsheba is now his wife, and he has by her a child. And while he might have believed that his troubles were past, of course, for nine months, maybe a little shorter than that, seemingly, that Bathsheba prematurely gives birth, but for a certain amount of time, David now thinks he believes that his troubles were past. The fact of the matter is, the reality of the matter is, they were just beginning. What must be understood by us in our modern day, and what David failed to embrace in his day, was that the hard cold fact of the matter is that your sin will always find you out. He knew that. But he thought it couldn't happen to him. But your sin will always find you out. It might not be today. It may not even be tomorrow. But unrepentant sin will always be lurking in the shadows, ready to pounce when you least expect it. The remedy, however, of sin is sincere repentance. And that is what David lacked. He lacked sincere repentance. He lacked that very thing that would bring the mercy of God upon him and cleanse him. He had become so comfortable in the covering over of his sin, if not for the intervention of God through the prophet Nathan, he would have continued to hide that very thing that was destroying his relationship with God and was killing him in the meantime. And that is what unconfessed and unrepentant sin does. It destroys your relationship with God. Consider how unrepentant sin affects the saint. Number one. Unrepentant sin robs the individual from intimate communion with God. If David failed to repent, whether he understood that or not, his communion would be broken. In David's lamentation of Psalm 51, after he was discovered as an adulterous, deceiving murderer by the prophet Nathan, he cries out to God in order to reestablish his communion with God, knowing that it was broken. Note how David is opening his confession with a sincere begging in Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2. Notice. Have mercy upon me, O God. Now we know this psalm is a result of Nathan's chastisement because even the titles of these psalms are inspired. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You see, David is recognizing. Finally, because of the intervention of God through Nathan, he's finally recognizing that he has offended God and that what he had done was not only evil, but it would forever haunt him. Notice what he says in verse 3. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I'm never going to be past this. It's always going to be there. I can't go back and undo it. It's done. And what we do is done when we do it. You can't go back. And David understood that. My sin is ever before me. This is something that I'm not going to get over. 
And then he says, against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Now, notice, he says, this is evil. He knew what it was. He tried to hide it, but now he understands what it was. He laments that he might be cleansed from the sin which he had done in the murder that he had perpetuated, but that he might be cleansed from all sin, that not only his sin in the past, but all sin which would affect him in the future. Notice what he says in verses 7 and following. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. In other words, only you can cleanse me. Only you can bring me back into thy good grace. And I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Notice what he says in verse 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sin and blot out mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. My heart was darkened. It was filthy. It was dirty. When I looked upon that maid that was not mine, I was in darkness. Notice what that one thing that David is really concerned about. He's most concerned about the presence of God. Verse 11. Cast me not away from thy presence. You see, he understood that that was the most important thing. To stand clean in the presence of God. And take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Now consider, as we read this, consider the fear In David's lament, he is terrified that this one thing might have destroyed him. And once David realizes that he has been hiding his sin, he becomes fearful that God might take away the very thing that upheld him throughout his life. The blessing of the Spirit of God in his life. The presence of God in his life. Beloved, that is the one thing that we should covet more than anything else. To have the presence of God in our lives. Note also how this awakening, and this is what it was, it was an awakening. David had not only gone into darkness, not only was he walking in darkness, but he became the darkness. And now he, he's awakened by the light of the, of the prophet Nathan giving him this, this incredible testimony. Thou art the man. So David is now awakened to realize that it was God's presence that now he might forfeit which now, it was the most important thing to him. You know, that's when it happens. Take for granted, take for granted, take for granted, whether it's the congregation of Christ, the Word of God, the presence of God, the joy of God, you take for granted those things. And God then says, oh yeah, okay. And He removes those things. And this is what happens when we take for granted God's blessings. In order for us to realize that we have been taking... For granted, the presence of God in our lives, God often removes His presence so that we can, we can feel what it is like without His blessing. And that's what we're feeling today in the world at large. We are feeling what it's like without the sobriety of men and nations, without the presence of God's Word, without the presence of God's Spirit upon our nation. The momentary pleasure that David might have had with Bathsheba paled to the reality that God's presence might be forfeited. David was unable at that point when he was when he was reaching for the darkness. He was unable to consider that while he was where he shouldn't have been, doing what he shouldn't have been doing, he was reaching for the darkness. And so realizing that God's presence was withdrawn from him, David begs that God does not remove his presence and the blessing of his spirit from David. He comes out of the darkness 
by the reproving of Nathan. David is seeking spiritual restoration. But this is what is so frightening about the removal of God's presence. It is often undetected by the unrepentant sinner until it is confessed and sorrowed after. David was entirely unaware for the entire time that Bathsheba was pregnant. He was entirely unaware that God's presence was taken from him. He had become so comfortable in his sin and the justification of it that he was clueless as to the reality of his spiritual condition. He had continued in the prescribed outward religion to be sure. He was attentive to the commanded ordinances of worship which only served to dull his senses to the reality that God had removed himself from David. He was just going through the motions. How many of us just go through the motion? How many of us, we get up, we go to church because we have to go to church, but we're not really, we're not really there in the presence of God. It was only when David was forced to openly confess his sin, openly, that he realized that he was in danger of forfeiting God's presence. Second point. Sin affects the unrepentant sinner by removing all of his or her joy. Notice what David says. He begs God to restore the joy that he once had while in the good graces of God. Verse 12. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. So once the presence of God is taken, the joy is removed as well. David adds to this request with the plea that from this time forward, God would be with him to uphold him. Notice, uphold me with your free spirit from being ultimately destroyed because of his transgression. You have to uphold me. If you don't uphold me, I'm going headlong into sin again. I am weak. And David is finally recognizing he's weak. Remember when he looked upon Bathsheba. I'm the king. I can have anyone I want. I can contrive any situation that I want because I'm the king. He should have been on the battlefield, but he wasn't on the battlefield. He was where he shouldn't have been, and that's what got him into trouble. He's calling upon God so that he doesn't go into an extreme depressed state of anguish. Furthermore, he repeats his desire that God would keep him from ever doing such a wicked thing again. Notice his word. David uses the word uphold, which signifies an establishment. In other words, it's as if David is is asking God to to reestablish his right standing. Lord, reestablish our communion. It's the one thing David wanted. He is now disfellowshipped. But now he wants to be reinstated. And this is what was so important to David. To be again in communion and union with God. Thirdly, unrepentant sin darkens the conscience to the point where if not repented of, the conscience begins to harden. David's conscience was hardened. If not for the intervention of God, by the mercy of God, David's conscience would become seared to the point of no return. But this is the good news. The true saint, as David was, the true saint will never be allowed to go without confessing and turning from sin and repenting of it and repeating it as well. We find nowhere in David's life that he ever repeated such a wicked thing again. Since unrepentant sin is a death sentence, the wages of sin is death, it is God's will that all of his elect will come to repentance. Peter is very clear on this matter, speaking about the elect. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is 
long-suffering to usward, the saints, not willing that any should perish, like David, but that all should come to repentance. A turning away, never repeating it again. In order to bring David to repentance, God constructs a very interesting lesson, a very interesting narrative, a very interesting scenario. Now, he's not going to just come out and say exactly what David did. He doesn't send Nathan there and he doesn't say to Nathan, Nathan, now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go there and you want to tell David, you're the guy. No, no, we're going we're to let David deal with this. So he's not going to come out and say exactly what David did in order to bring about repentance. He's going to have David himself condemn himself. David is going to be put in a situation where he's condemning himself without knowing it. And this is the first step of owning one's sin. David, he didn't want to own his sin. But now he must. Nathan is going to make the man own his sin. Self-condemnation is an essential component to true repentance. Not, the devil made me do it, my mother made me do it, that one made me do it, the other thing made me do it. No, I did it because I'm a sinful person. He has to own his sin. That self-condemnation is essential to true repentance. Without it, whatever repentance may be evident, it's mostly counterfeit. Consider the importance of self-condemnation and what it accomplishes. The first is that David will indict himself for not only adultery, which is obvious, he's going to indict himself for covetousness. He coveted that which was not his lawfully. Second, David will indict himself for theft. He stole another man's wife. The third, David will indict himself for not protecting his people, but rather exploiting them for his own pleasure, like so many politicians and men in power do today against their own people. The fourth is that David will indict himself for hypocrisy. What a hypocrite. Consider the situation in detail. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. That statement in and of itself is incredible. That God would send this man, God's oracle, to bring the king back into the presence of God and restore him. Not without consequence, of course, but still, for the man to restore him. The sending of Nathan was the sheer mercy of God. The sheer mercy of God. God didn't have to do that. He could have raised up someone else. But he sends Nathan to restore the man. God could have deserted David and left him to his own sin, but he didn't. Instead, God sends Nathan, who is a renowned prophet, a man of the highest integrity, the highest caliber to the king in order to restore the king to a right relationship with God. And so whenever God points out our sins, either privately or publicly, he's showing us mercy and he's giving us a chance to regain our footing, to regain ourselves. So whenever God points out our sins, we should not shirk from them. We should not hide from them. We should look at them squarely. And embrace them and say, yes, yes, I am a sinner. There is, however, another lesson here. God's people, who are themselves prophets and priests, are to go to civil rulers when they sin and indict them. Make them own their sin. Make them see the error of their ways. But the church has failed in that commission. 
The church is silent in that commission. We should be like Nathan going to the kings. Nathan was injecting himself into the affairs of state as an example of what the role of the prophets of God entails. To remove the testimony of God from the political landscape is to neglect the clear example of Holy Scripture. And so upon entrance into the king's court, which is where Nathan meets David, goes into the king's court and asks the king to adjudicate a matter of this hypothetical man and his flocks and herds. And so what we have before us is a courtroom setting. I would think it was a public setting, but whether it was private or public, we don't know for sure. I would lean toward the fact that it was a courtroom setting and it was public. But if Nathan appears before the king at the time when all legal matters were decided, it may be safe to say that others were there, at least the elders of Israel, the judges of Israel. Because this is the court. And in a courtroom setting, there are others other than the king and the man bringing the suit. Now this seems plausible because Paul tells Timothy that whenever an individual willfully refuses to repent of an open sin like David, Even after the church has encouraged that individual to put away that sin, the church then is to bring the sin publicly before all the people. And Timothy is told this by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 5.20, Them that sin rebuke before all a company that others also may fear. It is to rebuke before all these people so that others may say, Look, I can be that man. I don't want to be shamed like that. And we also said last time, that the lesson is this as well. If David, the man after God's own heart, David, the great giant killer of Gath, the king of Israel and Judah, if he could fall into such a lustful situation, what about us? Who are we? Beware, lest you are tempted like David. Nathan is about to rebuke the king publicly. And so, in order to do this, He begins his scenario. But again, why tell such an elaborate story? Well, Nathan needed David to pass judgment on himself, think that he was doing so to someone else in order to ensure that David would not give himself an excuse. Remember, David was a little soft in bringing about judgment upon his family. He was soft with Amnon, Tamar, Absalom and others, Joab and his brother, He was a little soft when it came to really executing right judgment. So Nathan needed David to pass judgment on himself. He didn't want David to escape the full extent of the Lord's condemnation by making any more excuses because he was king. He could say, well, you know, I'm the king. And he could have done any of that. But Nathan is not going to give him a pass. And so he snares him. Deliberately, he snares him with this story. Let's consider for a moment the players of Nathan's parable. First, we have the rich man. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds. Now, it's obvious the rich man is none other than David, and Nathan is very precise by telling David that this rich man was in possession of many flocks and herds. In other words, David had wives and concubines more than a heart could even desire. Had everything he wanted, everything he ever wanted, everything he ever even thought he might want, he had. He lacked nothing. But David had more than just women, David had Israel. He had the entire nation. He had Jerusalem, the city of the great king. He had lands and territories that he had taken back for the glory of God. He had an undefeated army. He had worldwide fame. He had the testimony of the giant killer of Gath. 
He had children and families to look out for. Moreover, he had a testimony that he was a God-fearing man. And he held the office not only of king, but if you remember when he ate of the showbread in 1 Samuel, it seems as if he had the office of priest as well. He was also a prophet of God in his own right when he writes all of the Psalms. So he holds these offices. He is given everything that a man could ever want. He had everything and more. He is the rich man. Secondly, next, Nathan tells David of a poor man who really didn't have anything to talk of. But the poor man had nothing except one little baby lamb, a little ewe lamb, very cute, laying it out, very cute-like, beautiful little lamby, which he had brought and nourished up. It wasn't in the field, like some of our goats and sheep and cows. No, it was part of the family. He nourished it up. It grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drink of his own cup. Could you imagine a little lamb eating from the table, getting the scraps of food? He was a pet. He wasn't going to be slaughtered. He drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom, look at the intimacy here, and was unto him as a daughter. Now without any doubt, this man is Uriah. And his little lamb is the beautiful Bathsheba. But know how Nathan explains the love that Uriah had for his wife. He nourishes her as a good husband. She and he grew up in their relationship together. They had a history together. It seems also that Uriah might have had children, other children, not by Bathsheba, but other children. So she was caring for maybe some of his older other children. Well, this may be true. It also may simply be part of the parable and not a reality. But I think he might have had other children. Nathan may simply be trying to make a point that Uriah and Bathsheba had had a very happy life together. This was a happy marriage. This was wonderful. This poor man also cared for his wife by providing for her meat and drink from his own labor. The reference to having Bathsheba lay in Uriah's bosom symbolizes the closeness that Uriah felt for his wife. Finally, Bathsheba was like a daughter to Uriah. This may mean that she was cared for in a tender way as Uriah's daughter, but it also may mean that there was an age gap between the two. Now, it's interesting because if Uriah had children, maybe he was an older man and married a a younger woman. Now, this may coincide with the possibility that he had these other children from another woman and that woman had died and he took Bathsheba to care for his family after his first wife died. This would make Bathsheba a young woman, which is why she identified as very beautiful. As David saw her, she was very beautiful to look upon. This, of course, is all speculation, but it seems plausible if we are to take Nathan's parable as historically accurate to the situation of Uriah's house. This would finally resonate with David. Note what Nathan is doing. He's setting up a scenario of contrasts. David doesn't know this, but he is setting up a scenario of contrast between Uriah and David. Note, while Uriah nourishes Bathsheba as a good and faithful covenant husband, David had no intention of taking her as his wife initially. He used her for her beauty in a lustful rage. Secondly, while Uriah and Bathsheba had an intimate history, David had no history with the woman. He was not at all concerned about any long-term relationship. This was a one-night deal. She was simply a throwaway, a fling, 
a non-committal affair, no covenant here. Third, if Bathsheba was caring for Uriah's other children, David cared little for her responsibilities in order to satisfy his own passions. Four, Uriah worked hard to provide for his wife's comfort. David offered no such thing, even though he was rich. We don't read of him sending her away with with riches and, and gold and silver. No, nothing, nothing. See ya. But Uriah, he wanted to provide for Bathsheba, while David wanted to provide for David. Number five, Uriah's heart was knit together with his wife's. Well, David barely knew her. And the final point, the relationship between Uriah and Bathsheba was tender, likened to a father, to a daughter. Well, David's relationship to Bathsheba was as a man to a harlot. Nathan then tells David that when a certain traveler passed by in order to provide for the traveler, the rich man refuses to take from his own flock and herd to satisfy the man, but rather takes from the poor man his one and only little baby lamb. Nathan then introduces a third party into this parable, a traveler, a wayfaring man. Now, Nathan could have introduced this individual in order to make the parable flow more smoothly, but I really don't think that's the case. I think there's a real method behind this. The word used here to identify this man refers to someone who is a wayfarer or someone who is not settled. If you're a traveler, you have no home, you're traveling, you're going here, you're going there, you really have no no roots. A man who's restless, Always traveling, looking for new cities, new conquests, new experiences. This man seems to indicate someone who is dissatisfied with his position and as a result, he is always moving about but never really finding a place that he can call home. Now, I believe that this traveler is also referring to David, who is either psychologically restless and perhaps even dissatisfied with the situation, looking for more experiences. Why then wasn't he at the battle? Why was he looking out over the city to spy out this thing or that thing or the other thing? He was restless. For a man who should have been out in the field of battle, instead David was contemplating his restless heart and how it could be satisfied with new experiences. And that is when he looked upon Bathsheba to satisfy his restless flesh. And this is what happens when we are dissatisfied with God. This is what happens when we are restless, when we become restless. We seek after other experiences. And most times, those experiences are sinful. And although David had many wives and concubines at his disposal and children to care for, to satisfy himself, instead of drawing from his own flock, from his own herd of women and flocks and herds, he takes the poor man's only lamb to minister to the wayfaring traveler, the restlessness of his heart. Not satisfied with what God had given him, he lusts after worldly passions. We see that in the church today. I'm not satisfied with the exposition of the Word of God. I need fanfare. I need, I need, I need music. I need theater. I need lights and, and all kinds of things. I'm not satisfied with the Word of God. The simplicity of the gospel is no longer exciting anymore. I need something else. David's heart was restless. Not satisfied with what God had given him, he lusts after worldly passions. So instead of reading our Bible, instead of listening to something of edification, we go on the video. And we play video games. And we waste our lives on the lusts of the flesh. You see, you never know that Jesus is all you need. 
until Jesus is all you have. And that's where David is going to be brought. David is about to be brought to nothing. Facing the one thing that he lost, the most important thing that he lost, and realizing it is the one thing that he needed the most. And herein is a lesson again. We should never be like David in this manner. The flesh is always restless. Know this. Your flesh is restless. Mortify. Mortify. Mortify that restlessness. Put off the old man and put on the new. The flesh is always restless for new experiences and things which titillate the senses. That's why we have the churches so fallen into apostasy. Because they can't win people with the exposition of the Word of God, so they try and win people with other things. What you win people with, you win people too. There's also a that theological aspect to this restlessness. Until the flesh is mortified and brought to heal, new religious experience will always be sought for. The restless soul can never be satisfied with the simplicity of the gospel. It will always seek for more. And once that something is achieved, it brings destruction if not repented of. Now once the stage is set and the setting is complete, Nathan tells David that the rich man covets and steals the only thing that this poor man loved and had in order to satisfy the traveler and David is wroth. The hateful passion of David rises up in him and he is angry. Notice, there came a traveler unto the rich man and he spared to take his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And upon hearing this, David is wroth. His anger is stirred. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. Verse 5, what a hypocrite. What a hypocrite. That David who we loved, who we honored, how far have the mighty fallen? How destructive is sin? David is now not only a hypocrite, I mean, that's bad enough. There's something worse. He's a blind hypocrite. He doesn't even know he's a hypocrite. The Hebrew language here is very specific. As if to say that upon hearing this terrible crime, it was as if David's, and just picture this, as, as if David's nostrils were breathing out fire. His nostrils were flared open. It was like a, he was like a fire-breathing dragon ready to consume his enemy, the rich man. And while he is ready and willing to judge another man, he is unwilling to judge himself for the same atrocities. Paul warns the church at Corinth that were so full of themselves to be mindful to be self-judging. Notice what he says, 1 Corinthians 11.31, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Consider the sentence passed against the man. David immediately passes the death sentence upon the rich man. And this is quite odd, since there was no murder in the parable. Just theft. Why would David pass a death sentence where only restitution was required? Perhaps it was to show how pious he was, how angry he was, how holy he was. Remember, at this point, he is so full of himself. David goes overboard to show how he hates sin. Oh, I hate sin in someone else, but I'll just nourish it in my own breast. I'll judge that other person, but I can't judge myself because that would be too indicting too uncomfortable. And so David goes overboard to show how he hates sin by passing a death sentence upon a man who should only be required to restore that which was taken. And this shows us that David had lost all sense of justice. He had shown in the case of Amnon, Tamar, Abner, and even his son Absalom, he's lost all sense of justice. But then David adds a sentence of restitution, which was right. 
So first you restore and then I'm killing you. First you're going to restore and then you're going to be executed. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Notice, he adds to this judgment that the rich man should be further indicted because he was pitiless. He didn't even pity the man. Obviously, this rich man in David's eyes was a cold-hearted scoundrel, a scallywag, given over to fleshly lusts and evil self-fulfilling intentions. Having heard the sentence passed upon this man in the parable by the king, Nathan lays the axe to the root of the tree and points to David as the man. It must have blew his mind. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Now, I can only, you know, reading this, I can only imagine the shock, the, the, just the, the blood just draining from David's red face. The shock that David must have felt watching the blood drain out of his entire body as he stands before his court guilty of such wickedness. And one would think that's enough. That's pretty bad. That's a pretty horrible indictment. But God through Nathan doesn't stop there. He immediately shares God's anger for such wickedness by reminding David of everything that God had done for him as a young shepherd boy and how he had exalted him above his enemies, making him king of Israel, uniting the kingdom under David. Notice what he says, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Yahweh Elohim of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Note the last line here. If that had been too little. Too little? No one can even conceive of how much already was given. But God says, if that had been too little, if you wanted more, I would have even given you more. I would have given you such and such things. I would have given anything you wanted. And that is such an incredible statement. God is telling David that if he wanted more, if he needed more, so that he would not sin against God to satisfy him, he would have added to David's blessings. I can't imagine what those would have been. One could only imagine what that would have looked like. And yet that is God's desire for us. If we remain obedient God promises to bless us beyond our wildest dreams so that whatsoever we ask according to His will, He will give it. But we think we know better than God. We think that thing over there will satisfy us. So that's what I'm going to go for instead of having our satisfaction from God. Because that's where the blessings come from. That over there is death. Here is blessing and blessing evermore. So God tells David through Nathan, the reason why he's so angry. Notice verse 9. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? So not only, not only, and here's the lesson, not only did David do evil by breaking the commandment, he did it in the sight of God. Oh yeah, but didn't he go into his private chamber? Was there no one around? Wasn't an audience, I can be sure. But God saw, because God sees everything. You did it in my sight. Note, first, God cites the general reason for his anger, violation of the commandment. 
But then he details what David did. And this again, David is standing there. Just think of this. David in this courtroom, sitting on his throne, passing judgment. The horror that he must have felt. This must have been horrifying for David to stand there and hear all of the terrible things that he had done and had not repented of, but rather had hid them from God and the people for such a long time. Notice, Nathan is without mercy here. In order to bring mercy, he has to become merciless. Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Number one. And hast taken his wife to be thy wife. Number two. And has slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Number three, he used the enemies to kill a righteous man. Finally, the secret sin was no longer secret. David is exposed as a murderer and an adulterer, as well as a manipulator of the enemies of God, and he is complicit in all of those sins. This is what Jesus gave as a lesson to his disciples in Luke chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore, Whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which ye have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. Nathan was proclaiming David's sin upon the housetops for all of Israel to recognize, for all of Israel to see. David had conspired in the darkness to commit evil and spoke of murdering Uriah in the secret closet with Joab, only to have all of his evil deeds exposed to the light and proclaimed upon the housetops of Israel. Moses had told Israel that if they chose to rebel against God, their sin would truly find them out. We see this in Numbers 32:23. Be sure, notice, and be sure your sin will find you out. You can't hide from God. David had completely ignored this divine warning. Now consider the consequences that David now must face. Yes, he'll be forgiven. Consequences are real. The consequences are real. They're bitter. They're they're heart-wrenching. But they're real nevertheless. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me. Notice now the switch. You didn't despise only my commandments because my commandments are a reflection of my mind and who I am. You despise me. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you hate me, you won't. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will then raise up evil against thee out of thine own house and I will take thy wives before thine eyes. And give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. What a horrible thing. What a horrible consequence. If this doesn't strike terror into our hearts, nothing will. This was such a terrible consequence that David had to bear up to. And yet, there's still one more sorrow that David must face. One would think this is enough. This is enough. No, it's not enough. That's how bad the sin was. As a consequence, as a direct consequence of David's sin, the child born from his adulterous union with Bathsheba will be forfeited. David will live. The child will die. Immediately, life for life. And David now is left mourning over the child as the child is struck with sickness and contemplating the judgment of God through the prophet.
We will continue to unravel more of this pivotal story in the life of King David next when we return to the exposition of Second Samuel. And this we shall do unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.